Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 35. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. This is Watchman Alexander. And this is Terry Arnold. And today is an exciting day because we get to get into Genesis chapter 6. Ooh. And if anybody knows anything about what I like to write and talk about centers around Genesis chapter six. <laughs> There's a lot in there. It's about yeah, to be a roller absolutely. coaster. <laughs> this is where stuff gets real because chapter six is a, a very condensed explanation of the watchers mating with the sons of man. Some people may hear that and immediately go, what? <laughs> Who are the watchers? That's not in Genesis chapter six. Well, you're right. They're not there by name. Um, they're described as the sons of God, which in Hebrew is the B'nai Elohim. Yeah, and we'll get to that, but it's actually the Elohim. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to be interesting. We should probably just start there. The sons of God, where, what is that phrase? Where else does it show up? Um, so that's, you already have in the verse two. Start, you think? Uh, let's, let's start with verse one. Start with verse one. Okay. Uh, verse one says, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. It's verses one and two. Yeah. And so uh, I do want to hop in right there. They saw and they took and they chose, right? Um, I believe I heard this from Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, but the, the phrases there, they are echoes back to the garden. And so when we go into this chapter, we need to recognize the intimate connection that is the same tree of knowledge of good and evil type experience, right? So here it's, it's, different, it's different beings that are having the same experience of they're seeing something and then they're taking according to what they feel, right? Um, and that, those same words, that phrasing it is, is the same phrasing. Um, that we got back at the garden. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. They saw that it was good, just like Eve saw that the fruit was good, um, good looking, that is. And then they decided that it would be beneficial, that it, they, were, they justified in their heads that marriage is a good thing, right? Having kids is a good thing. Why shouldn't we have that? And I'm sure Eve was doing that same thing in her head. Um, well, this looks great for food. Uh, narrative tells us that she thought, hey, this is good for eating, so why shouldn't I? And then she reached out and took, and the, the watchers reached out and took. Yeah. So the first thing we probably need to discuss is the distinction between the daughters of men and the sons of God. 
because there is a traditional interpretation of this called the Sethite interpretation, which says that the sons of God were the sons of Seth and the daughters of men were the daughters of Adam. I'm sorry, were the daughters of Cain. <laughs> daughters of Seth, the daughters of men were the daughters of Cain. So you had a distinction in the, the lines, different lines of human, of humanity, excuse me, but they were all human and they were able to mate together because of that. That interpretation, although very old, has some significant problems in my book. Yeah. And, and even when we hop into that, um, looking at verse two, right, the translation is when it says daughters of men. Um, I already mentioned that it, it says the uh, Alex said sons of God, and that's what most translations say, sons of God. But in the Hebrew, there is a definitive article. So that's the same as the word the in the English. Uh, in front of both the word God and uh, when it says men, it actually says the man, that is Adam. Um, so uh, let me make sure I get my Hebrew right here. Vayiru b'nei ha-Elohim et benot ha-Adam. Okay, so you heard in there ha-Elohim, which means um, the God or the gods, plural, it's a whole nother discussion there. And then you got benot ha-adam, which means daughters, that's benot, and then ha-adam, the man. So it, as far as Hebrew is concerned, there is no, there is no, um, no way that that first phrase, benay ha-elohim, is re- referring to the sons of Seth. Like that, that's not at all what that communicates in any kind of way, shape, or form. And so then also, you know, it says the man, which is being really specific. So maybe that's where the Sethite view tries to hop off of and say, well, it's talking about a specific man. And then they, then you have to insert who you think that man is. And so they would insert their Seth as the man that is referring to. Or Cain. It right. doesn't say Cain, and it could. It could just say this, the daughters of Cain. And like you said, it doesn't say that. It says the daughters of the Adam, which doesn't narrow it down. That doesn't take us to one particular branch of the family tree. That's just going back to the beginning. So trying to then force that interpretation into the scripture, that's eisegesis. Mm-hmm. That's saying that this is talking about Cain's daughters. Well, that's just not in the text. Yeah, it, it's not. And, and just like you can say, well, it could be any man. I mean, that, that interpretation I would agree with. Um, but we're still talking about the daughter's side and not the sons of God's side. So the whole resting of the argument, if you will, it has to shift. And once it does that shift to be about the phrase daughters of men, then, you know, talking about Seth being the one, uh, it seems really one-sided and and not really a strong argument either way. Yeah, furthermore, as we go on here a couple of verses later, we see that the result of this union between the daughters of man and the sons of God are giants. Yeah, so let's go ahead and read through those verses. Yeah, go go ahead, please. Um, actually, you go ahead and uh, do your version. I don't. I have the Hebrew up, so it's going to be okay. much more out of place. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, verse three says, 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now that is just a weird aside that we, let's come back to in a little bit. All right, uh, verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the union between these two groups produced these mighty men. Now the, the Hebrew there is Giborim. Yeah. Uh, Gibor is the singular. And that means one who is, is very powerful, very mighty. And it can be applied to a lot of different types of people. And so that doesn't necessarily make it about um, some sort of hybrid. But this is somebody who is very different and stands out because of their power. Um, but we're also given the word Nephilim, which is very important. And we have to figure out what is a Nephil. Yeah. And then, the, you know, with that Gibberine, oftentimes in some spots that you get that translated as warrior. And so there is a sense of someone, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of cringe a little bit when it says men of renown. Because, you know, there's kind of more to it than renown. Renown, when I hear the word renown, I get this sense of honor and distinction. That, right. that could be anybody. That could be you know, MLK. <laughs> it could be Abraham Lincoln or something like that. But right. We're talking about actual power. And so it, it's uh, probably better to think about uh, how it is in literally in the Hebrew. So uh, it says meolam, which means from old or from eternity. Or from very, very ancient times, Anshe, which means men, and then Hashem, which means the name. So men of the name. So, you know, you could talk about all the different ways to look at the, like the phrase, the name. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is that these are going to people who be people who are popular. Like you're going to hear a lot about these, these men. So you're going to think more along the lines of people with a very huge reputation, like a legacy of, you know, um, think more in line, like Greek mythology, like if I say Hercules, if I say Hercules, like people know what I'm talking about. They get images of Hercules, however they see him in their mind when I say that, right. Or if I say something like the, the Titans and the giants of Greek mythology, since you mentioned mythology, um, those are a, a Greek way of remembering the Watchers and the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. I subscribe to that same idea. Like when I read it the first time and, and really thought about what it's saying here, the possibility of, uh, we'll say, heavenly or spiritual beings coming with women, having children. I mean, that, that describes pretty much most of Greece, Greek mythology. Um, you talk about all of the various times Zeus has interfered with uh, women and the offspring that came from those episodes. It, it just parallels right on top of what we read in Greek mythology and also Roman mythology because they, they parallel one another. You mentioned the word Shem, which means name, which is something that's um, often used to refer to Yahweh. Um, he's called Hashem, the name. Yeah, um, because out of respect, there are there are people who, especially the Jewish leaders, don't want anybody saying the actual name of God, so they'll use Hashem in its place. Um, but that word Shem shows up 
throughout the Tanakh, um, but the next time it shows up might be in the Tower of Babel incident. And that's when the people who are building the tower say to each other, let's not be scattered. Let's instead make this tower that will solidify our name. I'm paraphrasing that sort of weirdly, but they said, we, we want to make a name for ourselves. Doing something so great and wondrous that the whole world is going to remember it forever establishes your name in the sense that it's being used here in Genesis 6. So what Terry said that was exactly correct. Um, these guys, the Nephilim, whoever they are, they established by their very existence a name that is perpetual. Yeah, and so just to confirm, as I, I clicked on the link there for uh, the word Shem, the next time that it's used is in chapter 10 with the Table of Nations, with Yoktan and Peleg. Um, and then the next time is indeed the Tower of Babel in the very next chapter, a few verses later, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, making for themselves a name. What is it about the Nephilim that's so awesome and, and you know, different than any other people? And the question we really have to ask ourselves there, if we're going to try and subscribe to the Sethite interpretation, is what is it about the mating of two different lines of humans that came from Adam, it would result in a whole race that is spectacularly different. Yeah, I don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> well, there isn't one. <laughs> I mean, I, I've heard people talk about that view for a while, and I've never heard heard a good reason or anything along those lines. Uh, but this is definitely... I would say a foreshadowing, except it happened already. So <laughs> um, a foreshadowing of, of not mixing kinds, right? The prohibition from mixing of kinds by Yahweh later in the scriptures, once you get to the giving of the instructions on Mount Sinai, like that's the same kind of warning. And it's what we hear echoed in Jude. It's what we hear echoed in uh I believe it's first Peter or second Peter. Like this, this is not like a one, one off crazy interpretation. It's one that everybody signed on to that we were reading in our Bibles. They echo back to this. I mean, there's even a little echo from Paul when he's talking about head coverings for women. You get this weird verse where like, if you're just reading it and you don't have any context for, um, the idea of angels having anything to do with women or being attracted to them in any way. There's this weird verse <laughs> that you come across in around chapter 10 or so, uh, nine yeah. or 10. And it just sticks out. Like what, what is that about? And all of these things have an intimate connection back here to Genesis chapter six. Yeah, exactly. We have to go forward in the books of Moses to be able to find the, definition for Nephilim. And I think the reason for that, because usually the Bible will give you the definition um, earlier in the narrative before it's used again. And in this case, it's kind of backwards. Um, we're not really given a description of Nephilim until later. Why is that? Uh, most likely because this whole segment of Genesis is referring back to a pre-existing text. The first scripture that was ever written would have been the book of Enoch and Enoch testifies to this, you know, it, it gives us way more detail about the watchers and the Nephilim and how all that went down. 
so Moses's readers would have already been familiar with that stuff and they wouldn't have needed a, an exposition about those characters. Uh, it was already very um, prominent in the Israelite mind at that point. But if we go forward, we find that the Nephilim are giants. Um, there's, there's several different clans of giants and they're given different names. There's a lot of ites, but the, the overarching term, terms that are used for them are Nephilim and Raphaim. And, you know, we'll talk in some future episode about Raphaim and what that is exactly. But the Nephilim are giants in the land of Canaan. So giants came from this uh, mating of the sons of God with the daughters of Adam. And there's so many questions that come up around that um, that we should probably address. But first, let me just take you to Enoch and Jubilees because they really give a lot more detail about this incident. And, um, and I just want to, I'm not going to read all of it, but I just want to read a couple of little excerpts to, uh, to verify what Genesis is talking about here. In First Enoch chapter 7, we read, quote, It happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born to them, elegant and beautiful. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. End quote. It's verses 1 and 2. And then we can read something similar if we jump over to Jubilees, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, quote, And it came to pass when the children of men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the angels of Elohim saw them on a certain year of this jubilee, that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves women of all those whom they chose. And they bore unto them sons, and they were Nephilim. End quote. So we have the same sort of testimony from these extra biblical books, and we're given certain we're giving slightly different terminology than what we find in Genesis, which is actually helpful because we then get a better understanding of what sons of God means. And you know, in Enoch's account, it's sons of heaven. It's specifically they're called the angels and sons of heaven, um, and we see angels of Elohim in Jubilee. So taking those together, we can understand, okay, this is not, we're not talking about sons of the gods, as in the angels had sons already. No, we're talking about the angels who were created by Elohim, not, and, and here's where the, there's an, a very important distinction. Okay. There's the son of God, which is Yeshua. Yep. He was the only begotten son. Begotten is when you multiply a, a progeny out of yourself. These other characters that we're talking about are the sons, the, the B'nai Elohim, the sons who were created by the hand of God. So just like Adam was molded from the earth, these sons were molded from some spiritual matter. They were not begotten. That's the distinction between the son of God and the sons of God. And we have to get that clear. Otherwise, we're going to end up with some very wrong doctrine about who Yeshua is. So these Nephilim were, for some reason, gigantic. The sons of the watchers turned out to be huge. And uh, we don't know exactly why that is, but there's some, there are some things that might um, give us, how do I say it? Um, there's an example or two that we have in the world today that might make this a little bit more understandable 
uh, like when you mix a lion with a tiger. Um, now these are both feline, so they're they're very close together in terms of you know when you look at different kinds of animals, they're within the same kind. Nevertheless, they are very different species, and when they're mixed together, you get this thing called a liger, and ligers are gigantic. Uh, so for some reason, when these two fairly different types of felines mate, you end up with enormous offspring. I'm not a geneticist. I don't understand that, but, uh, but that happens. And, and it's not just in that particular instance, there are other uh, crosses, uh, other combinations, which result in similar things. So that can give us a little bit of a, a idea of how giants might've come out of this pairing. But even if we don't take that into consideration, there are a lot of I shouldn't say a lot. There are some ancient accounts that include the stories of these giants and they use similar names for them. So for instance, in Norse mythology, there are giants in the underworld, which we'll find out later. That's what happens to the giants. They get, um, some of them get sent to the underworld, but these giants are called Niflheim, which is very close to Nephilim, especially considering (laughs) How many thousands of years later those stories were being told? Yeah, and along these lines, you know, when you start having, we're going to call them weirder discussions like this about Nephilim or, um, you know, the sons of God mating with the daughters of men and all of these type of conversations, uh, you know, someone coming in hearing this for the first time, they're going to go, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And so as we have this conversation, I know. I want to be on the side of trying to make it applicable to us in this day and time. So definitely in this first portion here is we're just dealing with the mechanics of what it's saying. We want to at least address the fact that it, this is a mixing of kinds where two things that are not supposed to come together, come together. And even when I say that, it's especially for me, but for whatever listeners we have as a black person, uh, coming into this conversation, there's a lot of baggage that I'm going to come in with as well, because there have been theologians in the past who talked about the mixing of races in the same way, as though it was the same as the mixing of kinds. And you can go back in uh, just about any sector of Christianity now, if you go back far enough, you'll have someone who present these types of ideas that, um, you know, mixing black people with white people or anything of the like is some forbidden thing by God. But that's an important spot where we can make a distinction of kinds, right? It's not that, that, go ahead. That's tragic, and let me apologize for (laughs) any theologians that may have said something like that, Uh, because we're all humankind. We're all one kind. Yeah. I don't know where they were getting that from. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's it's a shame that that kind of thinking just embedded itself so much in the church in the, you know, you, you can find lots of it in the 1700s, 1800s, of course, all during times where slavery is being upheld as something that's uh, okay, um, even here in this land that we call United States of America. So when we get into this conversation talking about mixing of kind, the kind that's forbidden, it's more along the lines of what Jude specifically points out to us. And I'm actually going to go now to Jude 
chapter one, where he starts to warn about uh, this dangerous relationship with perversions. Um, so if we go back to Jude chapter one, starting around verse five, uh, now I desire to remind you though, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Then he shifts in verse six, and because he's warning about all of the things we shouldn't, we should remember back of these old things so we don't repeat the same mistakes. Verse six says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then he adds another example. Okay, so that verse six is a hyperlink back to the text we're dealing with now, which Genesis chapter six. And just in case you miss the reference of perversion, like in, let's say you're someone who subscribes to the Sethite view or something along those lines, it gives you the flip side. So that was angels going after men. And it gives you the flip side uh, in verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So then in the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, you have a distinct, very clear reference to men who wanted to actually mate with angels that were mm -hmm. in Lot's home. So you have both sides of that coin being shown to you here by Jude, um, who we all know uh, and accept as being an inspired writer. He's accepted in uh, all of the canons I know about anyway. Um, and so when we take this, we ought to take it seriously. And we also ought to be able to, um, especially now here in 2020, take a good look around at the things that are already possible that people have been trying to do for quite some time. As some examples, um, we already have it alluded to in stories that we read about and looking at movies. And then you, you might say, okay, yeah, that's movies. Yeah. But it's not, it's not too far lagging behind what people can actually do. When you think about movies like Jurassic Park, what did they do? They took the DNA of, of old uh, fossils and things, and they took the DNA samples that they could get out of that. And they manipulated that those things to bring them back to life. Right. That's the type of science that people are actually actively doing. Um, you can do Don't a search. Get started on genetic engineering, uh, transhumanism. That's a that's, whole series of episodes. That's that's I mean, that's actually what I'm alluding to right now. Like when we get when we get into this stuff, we need to realize that, hey, I get it that, you know, some theologian in third, fourth century couldn't really swallow some of the things that were being put forth. And so they came up with these other interpretations. Well, now I'm not certain that anybody has that excuse anymore, right? At this point in time, there's lots of stuff that, you know, a third century theologian would have no bearings on. And just so we're clear, like I, I there's a lot of those guys who I highly respect, their writings I respect. And in no way is this generation somehow greater than the ones before us in that regard. They, they did the best they could with what they had. And the thing is, we just happen to have a lot more access to a ton of things. 
the fact that I, uh, a person without any kind of divinity degree, can read one lick of Hebrew is due to the fact that I grew up at this time and at, at this time in history, right? And the fact that I have access to resources in my life. And that, that means that, you know, the things that I can learn are, are they're just different than the people from before, um, than the ancients, if you will. And so I say all of these things with the greatest respect for all of those who thought differently about this, this particular passage in Genesis 6 and any other passage like it where new information has been brought to light, right? We have uh, the fact that I could even read uh, the book of Enoch at all is a testament to this fact. And then adding beyond that to be able to dig deep into each and every word and how it's morphed and from one page to the next, or uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which it's not like I, I'm the one that you know, found the Dead Sea Scrolls and discerned them. Like none of these kinds of things can I take credit for, or Alex for that matter. We're just, we're, we're using what's been put in front of us and we're doing the best we can with what Adonai has brought to us at this time and in this day. And with that, as an engineer, like I look around and, and we need to understand that right now today, and actually it's been like this for at least eight years, Scientists are able to design things that recognize certain RNA strands or DNA strands and cut and splice as, as they so fit. That's possible today. I remember. Um, so what you're saying is we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I had to get that pun, pun in there. Pun, pun. <laughs> yes, we are. We are all standing on the shoulders of giants. And we need to recognize that, you know, as doing that, we can see farther and we can see some things that they could not see. As long as we always still cherish the things that they provided us before, we'll be in the right spot. I mean, this is along the lines with, um, you know, a, a verse which I've heard a lot uh, from people who no longer believe in the spiritual gifts uh, for today. They use First uh, Peter yeah, it might be Second Peter, actually. Let me see if I'm, let me get in position here. Okay, here we go. All right, so in Second Peter chapter one, there's a, a verse that I know traditionally in my, my background growing up was used to talk about how the spiritual gifts are no more. And they would start around verse really they would skip all the way down to verse 20. And they say, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And it's good for people. It's a very pastoral shepherding thing to do to warn them not to be led off by their own ideas. I mean, that's the whole eisegesis versus uh, uh, exegesis ideas, right? Getting stuff out of scripture or putting it in Right. This is a warning against that. And that's right for people to be concerned about that and to do that as long as they don't go take it too far and then say, OK, well, therefore, the the canon is, is closed. I mean, and even that's fine. I'm OK with the canon's closed, but that prophecy no longer goes out. Right. So verse 21 for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And why am I getting into all of this? is because the spirit of God is still speaking. And so 
those of us in this generation who are standing on the shoulders of giants from before us, we, we are doing so looking back at what they have said and realizing, oh, there's some, there's some things that they didn't get wrong, but that we need to say now for this time and, and day. They didn't get that stuff wrong, but there's more to be said that's specific to this generation that needs to be said in this generation, right? And we get that. We get that from actually the verse before 20, which says, this is Peter talking here. I mean, if you're going to get a better source, you know, please help me with the better source other than Peter. If you're not Yeshua yourself, right? So verse 19, so we, we have, the we here being Peter and everybody with him, have the prophetic word, and get this phrasing, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then he says this word, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So he is talking about the passing of the torch. We're trying to, to catch the fire, <laughs> to be lit by Peter and Paul and all of the Jude and all of these that have written before us. So we can look ahead and speak prophetically into the future. And so in this moment, when I, when I see about the application of, okay, what do we do with Genesis 6? I think it's that we, we sound a bit of an alarm and say, hey, there is stuff that's already being perverted where people are mixing kinds. People are trying to dice and splice DNA and to make enhancements to people. They're trying to create giants. They're trying to create um, all of these different types of advantages, mixing animals together, mixing with human seed. You don't want yeah, to we're mix coming seed. into the hybrid age. And so once, once that is achieved and perfected, because it's not like it happens all at once, just as the other sciences have been thus far, these things get perfected. There'll be an early stage where it's more innocent. And then there'll be an extreme stage where I believe we re-enter into the Genesis 6 kind of narrative. And we have to deal with all of the consequences of our so-called human achievements. And Yeshua did mention that the last days would be in some ways like the days of Noah. So it seems to me that that's exactly where we're headed. We're headed back into a hybrid time. Let me springboard off of what you just said, especially your reference to Jude, because Jude quotes Enoch. He not only quotes him, but he says that Enoch prophesied. And that word prophesied is a very serious word. He's not just saying Enoch said this thing or wrote about this thing. He's saying that it was a prophecy of God that came from Enoch. And then he quotes this portion that we can find in the beginning of the book of Watchers, which is the first uh, book of the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is actually like five different scrolls. Mm -hmm. So he quotes from that first scroll called the book of the Watchers, which is all about the Watchers and the Nephilim. Well, at the beginning of that book in the same region as that quote comes from, it also says this book is not for today. It's for the last generation. So it does apply to us. In fact, it seems that there was a book from Enoch, really the first uh, written scripture that was intended to be preserved for the last days. And here we are. And it was rediscovered just in the last century. That's not coincidence. I refuse to believe that God 
I refuse to believe that God didn't preserve this on purpose for the end of the age, that it was just happenstance that we found it again. So we do want to pay attention to what Enoch is telling us because it has something to do with us and our children and maybe the next two generations or so until we get to the end of the age. Now, somebody is probably going to have questions about how is it that the angels could mate with women and all that stuff. I want to get into that in the next episode. Yeah, that sounds like a great, great place to just punch the clock here and say, until next time. Yeah, but uh, we've given people plenty to chew on if they hadn't already heard about this stuff. Of course, most of my audience is already familiar with this, but that's okay. There are some who probably aren't, and it's never bad to get refreshers anyway. All right. Uh, Any final thoughts? Any updates or anything like that? There is one thought. So if, if anyone hearing this is alarmed or afraid, don't get into that. Don't get caught up into that. Because we're not saying these things to scare anybody. In fact, it's actually the exact opposite. It's to equip, uh, equip the saints to not be taken off guard by anything that would otherwise shock them. Because in Yeshua, because uh, you know, I'm really excited to talk more about during the same time, what do we expect to see? Well, there's a parallel. Just as Noah was righteous in his day, there'll be another side to this coin of this perversion of, of this great purification of the body of Christ. And so I'm looking forward to talking more about that as we get later in chapter six and talk more about Noah, but you are to be the next Noah. That is our mindset. And in Yeshua's name, we will be, we will become that we will become like Noah. We become like Job and able to stand in great persecution and trial in strength and in light. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing the information that we're going through now is going to give you strength and hope. It's going to help you navigate the future. It's not going to make you more scared. I understand at first it might be frightening and confusing, but once you have it well in hand, you're going to find that it actually makes you much stronger and braver because you know what God is is doing and what he's going to do. And Noah was protected He was not just left in this crazy world of his without the hand of God being upon him. So as long as we're righteous like Noah, we're going to find that God protects us as well in different ways. He's not going to put us in an ark, but he may draw us out into the wilderness with other believers and give us a safe refuge there or do other things. I'm sure it's going to be a number of different things, but God will protect us. Indeed. All right. We're going to wrap up there for this time. Uh, look forward to more of this discussion next time. And until then, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out. Shalom. Shalom.